You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big proponent of having free and fair debate. I'm a big advocate of discussion of complicated, important topics. And you'll notice that when it comes to so much of COVID, we haven't been able to do that. We've been told to shut up and do what we're told. That has been the theme of the last year. People who have taken unprecedented power into their hands and people who claim the mantle of the science have been telling you to just shut up. Don't ask any questions. We're not having this discussion. You do it because we say so. We do it because otherwise everyone's going to die. And they were wrong many times and their policies didn't work. And the things that they said would happen did not. The things they said didn't happen did. And at every stage, it just was the same game. Play upon people's fears and use the power of the state to force them to comply. Well, now, as we see with where we are with this uh, Johnson and Johnson vaccine situation, we have a lot of undoing of this uh, brainwashing to do. And we'll get into all of that. And, And I mean, just about whether we're allowed to have certain topics discussed. I'm not even taking a position on all this stuff. I'm not even telling you one way or another. I'm just saying we should have had much more debate about everything going on with COVID. And a big problem with all this has been social media censorship. As you know, the left has been dominating these social media sites for, well, all time. But now they've decided to completely crack down on conservative speech and Twitter and Facebook act like the editorial pages of the New York Times. They decide what can and cannot be shared, be written, and they'll kick you off. They'll they'll punish you. Well, one way that you can protect yourself from this is with a virtual private network. Okay, a virtual private network creates protection for you from hackers. It also creates anonymity for you online when you are surfing the web, when you're doing all the things you're doing online because it masks your IP address. So think of it this way. A VPN will make sure that you are unable to be tracked and also that your data is encrypted and protected so people can't steal it. So you're masked in a sense, and you're also protected with your data. The best place to get this done is ExpressVPN. All you do is download an app. It's so simple and straightforward from ExpressVPN. You'll set it up and have this running as I do on your laptops, on your smartphone, and like I said, gives you encryption and prevents spying from all over the internet on you, but particularly from the social media companies who want to sell your information. It's finally time to say no to censorship and take back your online privacy. All you have to do right now is go to expressvpn.com buck. You'll get three extra months free on a one-year package. They'll give you three months free, and this is going to cost you around six bucks a month to protect all your devices. You need to do this expressvpn.com slash buck again that's expressvpn.com slash buck to protect your data today vaccines are a very contentious topic in america today i have dear friends who are young and at low risk and they're saying that they won't get the vaccine that they would rather falsify their vaccine status if they have to i know other people who feel like the vaccine is the answer to a, a prayer, right, that, that this is God giving us what we need to get past this. I, I know people on all sides of this. One of my fundamental uh, my fundamental conclusions about everything that we've seen over the last year 
is that it is deeply unhealthy and incredibly problematic for health decisions to be taken over by public bureau, public health bureaucrats and that there's no discussion or debate allowed about this. It's do what you're told. Shut up and do what you're told. And when you start to push back on this, there's this mob Fauciite consensus mentality of we've already thought all this through for you. You don't have autonomy. You don't have any basis for questioning this. You have to just do what we tell you to do. And it's not even just a function of uh, whether or not you take this risk uh, yourself. It's also whether you're willing, whether you'll do what you're supposed to do to protect all those around you. And so you're morally blackmailed into the Fauciite consensus, as I call it, which is just the, these people make decisions. They're not accountable to anyone. They don't get fired. They're not. There's not. You know, there's no. How many public health experts in this pandemic have resigned because they suck at their jobs? How many? Right. Fauci somehow after on the one hand, he says we had the worst virus response of any country in the world, which isn't even true by the numbers, not by a long shot. But Fauci will say that. But he essentially stays on in the Biden administration. He's the immovable bureaucrat. Nothing can get rid of this guy, huh? He stay he stays forever. He keeps his job forever. And that's the mentality that's at the heart of so much of what we've seen here that it doesn't matter what really happens. The good smart people who make these decisions for you are infallible even when they're wrong. Now I know that's that's incoherent, it doesn't make sense, but that's what we've been forced to accept as a country. We've been forced. If you didn't agree to mask up, if you didn't agree to double mask now, if you didn't agree to social distance, it didn't agree to shut down your business, if you didn't agree to stop going to church, they made you. They made you do these things or else. And when they're wrong, there's there's no consequence for them because they think they're doing the right thing. Okay, this has resulted in a society that is now completely unmoored when it comes to risk management. And what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. Let me tell you this. I have always been in the camp of people of people who, who strongly believe that you should be able to determine whether or not you get the vaccine. It is in your hands. It's your choice. And I've advocated for people who are at high risk to get the vaccine. But I've also said that I believe even for those people, it should be their choice. You know, do you want to get this to protect you? What they've done, though, is by by exaggerating. Oh, did you know they've exaggerated asymptomatic spread? If you look at the estimates and the numbers they were using 12 months ago and what we actually see now, they've dramatically exaggerated asymptomatic spread. But that was necessary. You see, they had to make it seem like a more urgent threat, because if really it's sick people that give this to other people and particularly people that are pre-symptomatic in a home setting, where the government has basically no real control over the situation. How are they going to get everyone to mask up and, and lock down and wash their hands and stay home? So they exaggerated asymptomatic spread. And I can show you, I mean, this is in the journal Nature. There are publications that have pulled the data, pulled the studies together. And they are very clear on this. They will show you that, yeah, it's they thought it was 40 percent asymptomatic spread it's probably more like 10 to 20 percent. Now, you could say, well, that's still a lot of people. OK, but 
Uh, so now, now it's asymptomatic people all had to wear masks because that was a there was a a ten percent of the spread coming from them, even in situations where I mean you know you start to break down numbers you say is this a is this a necessary public health measure or is this a panic maneuver? Can't even have this discussion though in most places. I would get kicked off. I love that I'm on the radio and I love that I podcast. Because I can say I can't write these things to you right now. I can't actually put this stuff out on Twitter or Facebook or even online. Although I try to sneak some in at BuckSexton.com. So you should always go to my website there. And I've got a piece on what a bureaucratic bureaucratic monstrosity the CDC is up right now uh, that I wrote. But we haven't had the exchange of ideas necessary to come to the truth on this stuff. We've been told what to do. And this brings me. To, and, and if you try to do what I do, which is come at these from different angles and have a real exchange rooted in the facts, rooted in reality and make the case that these are risk management decisions. Health policy is not the science. And people who say that are morons because it's OK. What level of risk is acceptable? What level of risk? That's why Fauci won't give you an answer now, by the way, about when we go back to normal. He could say when we're at this number. But then they'd have to stick to that. And people would say, well, why is it that number? I mean, we could probably handle it. You're still accepting there'll be some spread. There'll be some death of COVID, but we're going to go back to total normalcy, right? So why why does Fauci get to decide that? Ah, you're starting to see this is the problem. This is the the shaky uh, foundation of their argument. And then you have this recent Johnson & Johnson situation. And this is getting a lot of, you know, Panic click headlines. Oh, my gosh, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. The by the numbers right now, the chance of in the U.S., the chance of getting a blood clot from the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is one in a million. One in a million. That's the actual. But you've had six cases of blood clots that they think are attributable to the vaccine. You've had six million vaccinations. And so now the CDC is saying, well, we should consider a pause. Notice they keep doing this. Pause your life. Pause the vaccine. You know, life goes on, folks. I mean, this notion that we just, oh, we're just going to hit the pause button. Well, there's a lot of stuff that comes with that. And people are are freaking out about this. Young people that I know who are at very low risk from covid and very low risk from the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Uh, there's and I know, I know some of you are saying, Buck, how do we even know what the long term effects are of this? Uh, the answer is you're right. We don't know. You know, that that's a very simple truth that I think we should all be comfortable. We don't really know. There has been no long term testing on these vaccines. That's just a fact. And I I know right now you say this kind of stuff and you might get, you know, banned from the Internet. You might be called anti-vax. I'm stating an obvious truth. How how can they run long term testing on vaccines that have been in existence for less than a year? Somebody, you know, riddle me that. But. Again, I'm getting the vaccine. I am pro that I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm just merely pointing out we can't even talk about it. And that results in a lack of trust among people who say, why aren't we able to have an open discussion about this? Why have the social media companies and the news media and American corporations all united to effectively become high priests of the mask religion? Masking did not save us from this. Masking was also tried extensively 
in the Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918. And in case you didn't know, didn't work out for that one either. But there were people who believed if only we mass more, if only we mass more, we'll be safe. And there were big fights about it. You know, there were anti-mask societies. And now you have, you know, beta males from Vox.com who are running around writing pieces about how they know the science. No, they really don't. They really don't. And uh, there's been such a shutdown of debate and discussion that now one in a million risk when the Fauciite consensus wants it to be is too high. Do what they say. But people see this and they say, well, hold on. If the chance of my two year old getting covid and giving covid to anyone else is, you know, one in 50,000 or one in 100,000. And the state says that's not acceptable, which is what they have done in some states. If that's their approach, is one in a million risk from a vaccine something that we need to take on? Right. You, You see how they've completely and utterly undermined our notion of a reasonable assessment of risk in society for health and for public health purposes, because when they want you to shut up, they say, well, it's not 100 percent. So we can't say you're safe when they want you to lock down and mask up. It's well, you know, if it saves just one life, they're playing these games with all these numbers all the time. They're making value judgments for you. They're making judgments based on ratios and numbers for you, not absolute principles. They're saying this is acceptable risk for you. But they pretend that there is actually an answer to this and they've got it. You see, is one in a million a risk for a vaccine for you? Is that is that uh, something that makes you gives you pause? Shouldn't be. One in a million risk. If you look at other things out there, you'd never leave your house if you're worried about one in a million risk. But they have conditioned the American people, the lockdown mentality is that if there is any chance, even theoretical chance of an outcome and we want to use this to take away your freedom and liberty, that's enough. That's what they've done. So you see, they've reset the neurons in millions and millions of people's uh, brains. here. You know, they, they've changed our thinking about this. They've abused it and manipulated it for their own purposes. And now we're seeing what the results are when there are some problems. It was inevitable that there were going to be some problems with these vaccines. All vaccines have some level of risk. But in order to control people's actions and control populations, they play games with the actual ratio, the actual numbers, and pretend to have all the answers when they don't. And now they've got a situation of tremendous public distrust. And and I know a lot of you disagree with me. And, and I'm pro-vaccination. On this on this point, not for all vaccines, but for this vaccine. Yeah, I I think this makes sense for people. That said, I understand that it should be a choice. And I understand that they've pretended to have more certainty than they do. And they've taken away your ability to make your own choices here under the premise that they are like the public health gods and cannot be questioned. There are different tools that we can use for different periods of when things are out breaking out when there is an outbreak. Um, for example, we know that if vaccines go in arms today, we will not see an effect of those vaccines, depending on the vaccine, for somewhere between two to six weeks. So when you have an acute situation 
um, extraordinary number of cases like we have in Michigan, the answer is not necessarily to give vaccine. In fact, we know that the vaccine will have a delayed re response. The answer to that is to really close things down, to go back to our basics, to go back to where we were last spring, um, last summer, and to, to shut things down, to flatten the curve, to decrease contact with one another, to test to the extent that we have available to, to contact trace. Sometimes you can't even do it at the capacity that you need. But really what we need to do in those situations is shut things down. I think if we tried to vaccinate our way out of what is happening in Michigan, we would be disappointed that it took so long for the vaccine to work to actually have the impact. I mean, I wonder, is, is the CDC director, is it just like she's a robot? This director Walensky, does she not actually think she just has a, a bunch of data, a bunch of talking points that she repeats over and over? We're going to shut. We're going to do a two week straight up shutdown, no, not even a reduction in indoor dining. Whatever. We're going to actually shut down in Michigan for two weeks. Does anyone think that that's going to solve the problem? You're going to shut down for two weeks. And then what happens when you start to reopen again? We, we, we've gone through this before. We keep doing this. They don't understand. They don't seem to get it. They squeeze the balloon, the air goes to one part of it, and then they squeeze the other part, and then they go, wait, wait a second, the air is still moving around inside the balloon. That This was all about hospital capacity from the, by their own words at the beginning, and now it's like a, they act like it's like a cure. We're just going to stop seeing, we're going to stop living and stop seeing each other. That'll stop the disease. I mean, it will work a little bit for the time you do it, but then you reopen. And I know that they say, oh, well, Buck, but they're going to have vaccines. And that's the thing. We're getting these vaccines two to six weeks. You think they're going to have a full on lockdown for two to six weeks? Or are they going to have a, everyone gets hectored and nagged lockdown? But there's still people going to stores, seeing each other in private homes. You know, it's never it, we've never done an actual lockdown, even in our first two weeks of this. And she says the thing about test and trace. I mean, I just have to ask, are these people morons? Michigan has seen a 200 percent rise in coronavirus cases since last month. OK, cases are up 2x. I'm sorry. Yeah, 2x from 2000 a day to 6000 a day. Do you think the state of Michigan has the resources to test and trace 6000 cases a day? H how would that even look? D do you think that that would even stop it? Let's say that they could even t try to test and trace everywhere. You're still finding out about people who have already been exposed to the virus. But this is just, they're, they're like, you know, chickens with their heads cut off in the public health establishment. They're just running around, you know, making noise. It doesn't make any sense. What are they saying? Test and trace? We're back to that? You heard her. That's the CDC chief. And she goes, well, you know, maybe we, you know, that might not work. Yeah, it'll work. Nothing. Zero. Not at all. But why is she saying it? Because it's the best she's got. That's the best she's got, because you know what they really don't want people to think about? Why is Michigan having so many cases? They can talk about variants as much as they want, but we have numbers on that, too. The UK variant, B117, uh, they say accounts for a lot of new cases in that state, maybe as high as 70% of cases in Michigan. Um, and according to the CDC, I'm sorry, no. They don't know how many cases in Michigan. Michigan has 2,262 confirmed cases. So forget about the 70% number. 2,262 uh, confirmed cases. 
But Florida has 3,510. So why, why is Michigan completely out of control when, when Florida's actually had more confirmed cases of this variant and Florida's opened? Michigan is still doing all the things. Wash your hands, social distance, double mask. I double mask because I'm a Fauciite and I believe this, this little tyrant smurf goes on TV. You know, just a little longer, just a little longer. Hold a little more, maybe a little more time. You don't know. You know, you could get a plateau and it could be a diminution of the ascendancy of the next phase of the parabolic upsurge of the downsurge. I mean, this guy is is so pathetic at this point. Just listen to him. I call him Dr. Thesaurus because every time he goes on TV, he's using all these words that he doesn't have to use to sound more authoritative and smart than he is because the guy's grasping now. What is he even saying? And we got CDC Walensky telling us, yeah, shut down Michigan for two weeks. You think, you think that's going to fly? You think everyone's going to say, yeah, let's just shut it down for two weeks. Oh, wait, no. Maybe it'll be four weeks. Maybe it'll be six weeks. The public health establishment uh, in, in the United States bureaucracy, federal and state level, has been an enormous failure during this pandemic. Understand that. An enormous failure. And they still want to control you and they want to act like they know what they're doing. Man, it is a tense time on social media. I got to tell you, I mean, when you've got these topics like vaccination and the BLM protests and riots and all this stuff, it really does feel like you never know when someone's going to decide that they are going to target you because you say the wrong thing or you get deplatformed. And, you know, I know for a lot of us, we just want to be able to talk to other conservatives too, talk to people that share our ideas and values without the trolls that will come out, right? Well, that's why I want you to check out Caucus Room. Caucusroom.com is a social media network exclusively for conservatives. It's an online community for conservatives to gather and engage locally. Only people who are verified conservatives can become Caucus Room members. They weed out the trolls, okay? They don't allow left-wing lunatics to infiltrate. So Caucus Room will also never share your information with anyone ever, and the sign-up process ensures you're communicating with real conservatives in your neighborhood. Caucus Room is made by conservatives for conservatives to get organized and make a difference. You can share news, jokes, and just find ways to get involved with causes near you without the fear of Silicon Valley overlords stomping on you. We need to organize as conservatives these days at the grassroots level, at the local level, all the way on up, right? Caucusroom.com can be a part of that, and it's free. Join the Buck Sexton listeners group on caucusroom.com. That's C-A-U-C-U-S-R-O-O-M. C-A-U-C-U-S-R-O-O-M.com. Caucusroom.com. Join the Buck Sexton listeners group to interact with others just like you. We can stop pretending that this is just the natural order of the universe and things happen this way. I'm going to demand that the legislature finally hold some hearings on some of these reforms, as I said, that have passed in other states and have proven to make a difference. Things that are supported by both law enforcement and community members. Things that we know that would reduce the chance of a routine traffic stop escalating into a loss of life. The governor of Minnesota there doing what we know so many politicians are going to do, which is to claim to do something in the aftermath of the shooting of Dante Wright, uh, killing of Dante Wright in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota over the weekend. And as we know, there's already lots of riots, more riots expected. 
riots uh, and protests are going to spread to other cities across the country. Are we really supposed to accept this as some kind of new normal? We're supposed to believe that this is the way things should happen. You know, there there are there are other police involved incidents uh, that that have lethal force that are it's completely unjustified. But if the victim of it is not black or Hispanic, but particularly not not black, uh, there's an expectation that there will not be riots, that there will not be any civil disorder and that it will just go through the process and we'll see what happens and hopefully we get justice. And but anytime there's a there's this narrative, as we see, of law enforcement and a, a lethal force incident with a young black male. There is the heightened prospect immediately of riots and looting. Uh, this is disgraceful. This is disgraceful. And the Democrats are playing a double game here because they'll say that they don't want this. But as we know, in so many ways, they actually encourage these feelings because they go along with the false narrative. They go along with the lie that BLM is built upon, which is that cops are routinely, systematically and without consequence, murdering unarmed black men. The Dante Wright shooting, based on the video we've seen, was a was what would be called in police parlance a bad shoot. It may, in fact, be a involuntary manslaughter case. It could actually be criminally charged. It looks very bad. It looks like a tragic accident. Accidents do happen. Anybody who's around firearms knows, you know, they used to tell us stories when I was in the CIA about people that were really squirt away and, you know, even former military and people that were, you know, elite special operations. And sometimes somebody has an AD, you know, an accidental discharge. It happens. I'm not in any way justifying or minimizing. I'm just saying that is the that is the the obvious fact of what we see in that video. I mean, clearly this veteran of the force of over 20 years, somebody been a police officer for a long time, this woman who who pulled what she thought was her taser made a terrible mistake. This has happened before as well. This is something where in the heat of the moment, muscle memory comes into play and you can make a terrible mistake. And there's a reason why anybody who spent any time training around farms will will say that, you know, trigger discipline is so important, knowing your target, knowing what you're doing, making the affirmative decision to shoot. ADs are it's 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 life and death. And that's why firearm safety is so important and proper training. And these people who are suggesting, as Governor Waltz was here in Minnesota, that if only we had a different policy, this wouldn't have happened. No, unless you want disarmed cops and good luck getting cops to police high crime neighborhoods without any you know lethal force option available to them. Unless you're going to disarm your cops entirely, which would mean just allowing criminals to run rampant and, and really destroying the country, I think uh, you're going to have the possibility of something like this happening. We're not going to be able to turn every every patrol officer. We're not going to be able to turn every, you know, every state trooper into a Delta Force operator who, you know, with his eyes closed, can hit a target at 200 yards in his weak hand, you know, after running four miles. And, you know, that's not going to happen. OK, so we could stop with the oh, if only there was a different training. No, it was this was a terrible accident that happens to come at an awful time, given the situation of Minnesota and the Chauvin trial and everything happening around it. So we know this is a match into a tinderbox and already there's more 
rioting and looting that has happened. Uh, the president, Joe Biden, and look, the Democrats, their fingerprints are all over the BLM riots of last summer. They were they were supportive of this. They justify this. They do not. Get, they always do the the half hearted kind of, uh, you know, eh, condemnation, the, the wishy washy condemnation of of violence. But I mean, I understand why everyone's so upset and we need to protest. We need to get out there and get angry about this because fundamentally the cops are racist and this is a racial justice issue that that's the way they do it all the time. I mean, here, here's Joe Biden saying that he wants peace and calm. Play 13. There is absolutely no justification, none for looting, no justification for violence. Peaceful protest, understandable. And the fact is that, you know, uh, we do know that the anger, pain and trauma that exists in the black community in that environment is real. It's serious and it's consequential, but it doesn't will not justify violence and or looting. And so the question is uh, how we in an orderly way make clear that they get down to a full blown investigation to determine what the facts are and what is likely to happen. It's just astonishing, quite honestly, the president of the United States is even in a position where he's having to weigh in on this. And, and any president would, given the realities. But I'm just saying, think about this. I mean, this is a an incident. There are there are. Literally millions of law enforcement stops and arrests of Americans every millions. You might have one incident like this a year or or even every few years meaning the specifics of going for a taser and actually going for your firearm instead. It has happened. There have been other situations of law enforcement with an AD with an accidental discharge, and, and it can be lethal. And so now we're... What is the lesson that we're supposed to take from this? I mean, that's what I want to know. What, what, are, what are we supposed to believe here? That after 20-some-odd years on the police force, this, this cop decided what? What did she do other than make a terrible mistake? You know, what, what did she do that was that was evil? Do we, do we think that she wanted to throw her because her life is gone now, too, in a sense. I mean, her life will never be the same. She may end up going to prison. She's definitely going to lose her job. And and, and quite honestly, she should. Right. And she might have to face a uh, manslaughter charge here. The same way that, you know, if you were a distracted driver and you swerved off the road and you you mowed some poor innocent bystander down, you know, you're going to probably serve some prison time for that. You can't do that. Right. You're responsible for that. And this is a situation that in terms of the moral culpability gets pretty close to it. Now, there's another piece of this, which then goes to uh, it'll be left out of so many of the discussions that. It would be it would be helpful to try to convince people in general across the country do not resist arrest because the moment there is resisting and there's clearly resisting of arrest in this video, the guy basically makes a run back to his car and this escalates the situation. And when you have force escalation happening and pulses are racing and, in, and in, you know, you've got people's adrenaline pumping when that's going on. Uh, there's the there's a heightened risk of something like this happening. Now, that's not to say that what happened is, you know, the con that what happened is 
uh, you put the culpability on the individual who was killed here. Clearly, that's not fair and that's not true. But if we're really going to analyze the situation, it, it would be helpful to have a campaign of please, everyone do not resist arrest from police officers. Fight it in court. Take it, you know, take it in court. Take your take it in the court of public opinion as well as in the court of law. You know, there's there's always time to fight this stuff back at the station house. There's always time to to deal with this. But I mean, unless you really think that you've got a cop who's actually trying to to kill you or, or harm you on purpose. Uh, and I mean, I've that does happen, but it's very rare. You know, you've got to allow law enforcement to do their jobs. And I just feel like. We're now going to we're having the, the cycle of the conversation again and the cycle of destruction that comes from this. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of dishonesty around it. You know, when the Minnesota governor says we need to get more training or more procedures. This is this is a muscle memory issue. This is she she just, you know, she meant to push on one door and she pushed on another door. I mean, she made a mistake and she's going to pay a price for it. She should get due process in this but as we know that itself now has become a problem when people are angry and when the narrative lines up in this way of a black victim and law enforcement lethal force incidents all of a sudden the rules come into question themselves the rules the procedures the protections that individuals have under our legal system and we're already seeing that uh, all employees working for the city of Brooklyn Center uh, are entitled to due process with respect to discipline. Uh, this employee will receive due process, and that's really all that I can say today. Do, do you support the determination of an officer like this who has made the type of mistake that has cost uh, a resident of yours life? Do you support determination of this type of officer and what message are we sending here at Brooklyn Center to the rest of the world about the valuation of black life do you support determination of this type of an officer you know I understand and appreciate the comment that you made and, and why you said it but if I were to answer that question I would be con- I'd be contradicting what I said a moment ago which is to say that all employees are are entitled to due process that city manager was fired for saying that that's right he's been he's been fired the city manager of of brooklyn center minnesota terminated from his job for saying that there is a there's an expectation here of due process for all city employees uh that's kurt bogany and he's fired for stating a fact this is the country we live in now you understand this you can be fired You can suffer consequences for speaking the plain truth about something for which there can be no debate about whether what you said isn't true. It's just people don't like the truth. And then you you suffer the consequences. You say something that is true. You say the sky is blue and the mob says, I don't want to hear that. You're fired. That's what happened. Every city employee, I mean, it depends on where you are, but they all have some form of, of due process procedure uh, for somebody who does, a, you know, who has a situation like this on the job for law enforcement. For, for any public sector employee, there's, there's usually a, a union agreement or there's some understanding and there's an investigation. Now, I understand that we have a video and it all seems very clear, but they do have to take statements and there is there is. There, a due process here. 
And for people that are saying, oh, it doesn't matter, get rid of it. Okay, so when someone's accused of murder, do we just skip the trial and just and just, you know, take them down to the hanging scaffold? Is that is that where we're going to go to as a society here? Or do we have trial by a jury? Do we have presumption of innocence? You know, I'm sorry. I'm not willing to throw out fundamental judicial procedures, fundamental issues of justice in our society through the system because people are angry. People are angry is not enough for us to abandon central uh, central systematic protections of the individual here through the process. Yeah. Do I think this woman's going to lose her job? She's definitely going to lose her job, folks. And she should. And she might get criminally prosecuted. Depends on the specific statutes in the state of Minnesota. I mean, she's not going to go to jail, most likely, I'd say, for a long time. But, you know, she might get a few years. Again, it varies. And I'm not a criminal defense attorney and certainly don't know the laws in the state of Minnesota specific to this. But, yeah. Could she end up serving, you know, three, four, five years in prison for this? Yeah. That's, uh, that, sounds, that sounds plausible to me based on what ha- what's happened in other cases. And, you know, the, just the whole, the whole thing, though, we, we now are in a place where you can get in trouble for saying what is factually true. I mean, this would be like saying, if I stood up and said, Derek Chauvin deserves the legal presumption of innocence in the courtroom through our system, and someone said, you know what? Yeah, but I don't like you saying that about Chauvin, so, you know, you're fired. But I'm just stating a fact and the truth and something that's been agreed upon in our society for a very long time as well. But, oh, no, the whole system, the rules have to be thrown out the moment, the moment that they are inconvenient to the uh, leftist authoritarians. There can be no protection. There can be no process um, and they will undermine it. You know, they, they talk so much about sacred institutions under the Trump administration. What could be a more sacred institution than trial? by a jury of your peers, the presumption of innocence due process. Now, I know in this case they're talking about administrative process, but that still exists for a reason, too. That's also there so that people don't suffer unfair consequences, that they have a right to make their side of the issue known. You know, no matter how awful somebody is, and whether we're talking about a, a, a mass murderer We still understand that they should have the presentation of the right to. I mean, a lot of the times I'll take a plea bargain, but the presentation of a defense and the process still matters. And look, I think it's very likely you're going to see a firing. You'll probably she might be fired by the time you even hear this. I mean, some of you listen to the show on on a delay or you listen to it on demand on the podcast. So it's very likely that'll already have happened. But, you know, she's getting some process right now. Here's the Brooklyn Center uh, mayor who's saying they got to fire the officer. You know, we're uh, right now uh, assessing what we're going to do, what actions we're going to take next. You know, in any other line of work, if you uh, kill someone uh, in any other line of work, uh, you are at the very least going to lose your job. And so uh, my position has been that, uh, you know, I I do believe that the officer should be uh, fired. I I do believe she should lose her job. Yeah, she's going to lose her job. And he... It's going to lose a lot more than that. Uh, this woman, this officer, look, for obviously tremendous sympathy and prayers out to uh, Dante Wright's family and to his friends. It's an awful tragedy. This officer, though, her, her life is also ruined. Uh, she's going to have to carry this the rest of her life. Her career is ruined. She is now always going to be remembered for this one incident. 
I think it's very clear that she had no intention of of shooting this young man, and it was a terrible a terrible accident. And you know, her family has to carry this burden now too. I mean, the whole thing is an awful tragedy, and I just wish that as a country we were more geared toward trying to show grace and respect to each other as we deal with things like this instead of breaking into stores and stealing cell phones and sneakers. But for those who choose to go out, and as Mayor Carter said, to exploit these tragedies for destruction or personal gain, you can rest assured that the largest police presence in Minnesota history and coordination will be prepared. You will be arrested, you will be charged, and there will be consequences for those actions. It's not debatable. You're not making the case. You're hurting the case. You're undermining the grief, and you hear it from families time and time again. Don't you dare step into our space where we're trying to enact change through our system. Minnesota governor actually sounding like he's upset about the rioting and the looting that's already gone on. And and we'll see if he follows through on this. But this is just as I always tell you about incentives. Incentives matter so much at the border. Do people get to come into the country if they show up at the U.S.-Mexico border now and play the system? Do they get to stay? If the answer is yes, they're going to keep coming. Now let's look at incentives for looting and rioting. Do people who break into stores and steal stuff and cause mayhem and anarchy and attack cops, throw rocks at them, Do they get away with it because they enjoy this? Obviously, they like doing this. They feel justified at some level in some way or they use this as a pretext. They don't really think it's justice, I'm sure, but they just pretend. Do they get away with it? If the answer is yes, they're going to keep doing it. So we need to understand that that's that is a part of all of this, right? Whether or not the law enforcement authorities and the people in charge here make those who break the law in some kind of make-believe solidarity with the Dante Wright uh, family, those people need to be punished because they're hurting people that had nothing to do with this officer Potter, had nothing to do with the situation, and they don't deserve that. That's unjust, as we all know. It's very obviously so. Well, while the Minnesota governor is saying that you will be charged and we'll see there's there's been more. There was riots last night. They had a curfew. They've already called it the National Guard. They had more more riots, more looting going on. Where do you where do you think the mainstream media is in all of this? The corporate media, Democrat media, where do you think they are? Do you think they're trying to give a, a full context to this and, and just be professionals in the in the realm of journalism and, and tell people what the facts are and present this honestly? No, of course not. You know that's not happening. This is how they this is how they justify their constant uh, left-wing activism under the guise of journalism. This is an opportunity for them to push the racism storyline. Even though is there any evidence of racism whatsoever in this incident? Uh, there's no evidence of racism. There's evidence of a terrible a terrible mistake. An accident. An, a, an action that occurred that was not intended by the person doing the action. That's what we have evidence of. But it'll it still falls into this. You know, we're hearing even Biden, you know, oh, the, the grievances within the black community are so real. And we need to hear them and everything else. Well, this this is not a, a uh, you know, this is not a police brutality case. This is not a. Oh, my gosh, you know, they, they this this officer was kneeling on this person and should have gotten them help. Or this is very different from George Floyd. Using a taser in the circumstance would have been would have been justified. 
And remember, they keep pointing out that that Dante Wright had air fresheners in his rear window. I had never heard that that's illegal before. Apparently it is. It's kind of like tinted windows, which, by the way, the officer in New Mexico who was executed at close range with a rifle by a drug dealer, he pulled the guy over because of his tinted window. So this is a lot of this. And what they found out about Dante Wright is that he had an outstanding warrant for his arrest. So people who break little little laws are more likely to break big laws. This is central to broken windows theory, which is how you've had the tremendous drop off in crime in so many cities across the country, which, by the way, ended last year. And we had the highest murder rate in the United States in 20 years. Thanks, BLM movement. A lot lot of good that did for people. But, you know, the activists, CNN and, and MSNBC and, you know, other news organization, you know, Vox.com and HuffPo and these places. Who reads HuffPo's total garbage? So it's Vox. These places, they have wealthy people or well-off people sitting in safety and comfort in safe neighborhoods. A lot of times not very diverse neighborhoods either, but they love to talk about diversity at these places. And they cheer on the rioting, the looting and the the so-called BLM activist class as they make everything worse for everybody, which is what I've been saying all along. You know, if, if BLM was going around and they're saying we want police accountability and we also are going to make sure there are no riots, we're also going to, you know, if BLM activists are showing up saying if you riot, you are destroying our cause. You are helping the you are helping the other side, whatever that means. You know, then I'd, I'd be more willing to have a conversation about this. But no, the BLM protests end up being cover for the riots that always come later. And then it's, oh, it was mostly peaceful, as we know. Makes everything worse for everybody. Police feel like they're undermined. Are so many of our, of our uh, valiant law enforcement officers across the country feel like their jobs aren't, they are made harder and they don't have the political backing they need to make very difficult decisions in, in troubling situations. But I mean, if you want an example of how, honestly, how disgusting our news media is and how it's just a political monolith. They all think the same stuff. They all push the same narrative. I know exactly where they're. It's like their brains are all wired in a certain way for stories like this. I know exactly where they're going to go. Yesterday, the Brooklyn Center police chief Gannon had an exchange. I mean, this was chilling. He had an exchange with uh, with a bunch of journalists at the press conference. This was the first major press conference the police held on the Dante Wright shooting and Here's I want you to listen closely because, you know, the audio from the journalist is not great. We'll discuss it. But listen in as this is the Brooklyn Center police chief being told by journalists that he did not see and experienced what he did. Play one. One final question. What was your decision to issue a dispersal order um, while they were peacefully protesting in front of the uh, police station? What what led to you to issue a dispersal order and then on the back end of that 10 minute dispersal order, then to issue out uh, CO2 canisters and gas uh, for the crowd? So, Can you talk to us about yeah, just so everybody's clear, I was front and center at the protest at the at the riot um, we did not there was so I was we were being the officers that were putting themselves in harm's way were being pelted with frozen cans of pop they were being pelted with concrete blocks and yes we had our helmets on and we had other protection gear but an officer was injured hit in the head with a brick brick 
that was a Hennepin County deputy. He was transported to the hospital. So we had to make decisions. We had to disperse the crowd because we can't allow our officers to be harmed. And I've already answered the question, I believe, about your lighting. I know that's a that's a big deal with you, and I understand that. But I thought I'd explain that myself. So that is, I told you, it's my decision, and that's why I made that decision. You have journalists here telling the chief of police who was there and watching his fellow officers get pelted. And there's video of it. I've seen it. Okay, there's there's proof beyond any reasonable doubt. And he was there with his own eyes anyway. And he was actually present for this, being hit with cinder blocks and rocks. And they like to take cans and freeze things in the can. So it's basically like a really, a really uh, easy to throw projectile. And they're they're hitting officers with it. I mean, how many rocks would you allow to gash open your head at your job before you would take some kind of action to stop it? I'm, I'm just wondering, right? But notice the journalists don't do that. Don't say that there was no riot. Are they delusional or are they liars or both? Those are the only options. There was very obviously a riot. But you see, this is where we get to the greater truth beyond the actual truth. And this does have a very Soviet feeling, and it does increasingly seem like the mentality of some of the more extreme communist movements in history is is much more ascendant within our own Democrat Party and the American left than we'd like to believe that it doesn't matter what really happened. It matters what you can can convince people happened and how you can leverage that for the cause. Why do you think they run around talking about the insurrection on January 6th? It was not an insurrection. There was no violent effort to overtake and overthrow the United States government. There was a riot where some people became violent against law enforcement officers. BLM does that all the time. It was not an insurrection, but they used that term. And it's because of the power that it gives them to then attack their opponents and shut them down and set up fencing and set up thousands and thousands of National Guard all over Washington, D.C. And now here we are. There's another moment here. What is the what is the story? Think about this. What is the story the left wants to tell right now? What do journalists want people to see in Brooklyn Center? Racist white cop kills unarmed black man for no reason, because that's what cops do in this country. And the Republican Party is fine with it. And they cover it up. That's the storyline that they're pushing. It's a lie. But that's what they want people to think. And so they don't want any focus on the riots. Forget about the riot. Who cares? Let, Let people riot. That's that's the expression of their rage at the at the false narrative that's being told here. I mean, does any person really want to argue? Does any person actually want to expose themselves to open public debate about whether Officer Potter here wanted to kill? I mean, you think she she she's on she's got body cam on. Okay, it's all on video. She's got other officers there. It's broad daylight. She's yelling taser. I mean, it it, it couldn't be more clear that this is an accident, actually. But still racism, still racism. I mean, we're getting to the point now where if a police officer, let's say, um, was driving home drunk off the job even and the police officer hit a bystander on, on the on a street corner and the bystander was was white or Asian, you know, oh, that's a drunk driving accident. The person should be held accountable. But if, if the police officer, it's a police officer on his or her own time driving the car drunk hits a hits a person who is a black victim 
It's still evidence of racism somehow. No intent to be racist, but it's evidence of racism. Uh, 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 you see the comparison? But they, they, run with the, they run with the narrative anyway. And it's so damaging, and it's going to result in more misery and more destruction and the further degradation of community police relations in Minnesota and, and all across the country. And you know what a lot of people are going to think when they when they hear the media say there's no riots and they push this narrative of racism, which is behind all of this always is, well, I can't trust the cops. The cops are bad and maybe I should fight back against them when I'm arrested, which is a very unwise, very bad idea and leads to leads to more uh, unnecessary uh, force escalation situations that don't have to happen and is also going to lead to more tragedies. But the media cannot be trusted to speak honestly about this at all. They will not. And remember, this is all happening with the Chauvin trial in the background. In fact, in this case, the Chauvin trial just miles away. A quick a quick drive from Brooklyn Center is the Derek Chauvin trial, which is happening under the pretty explicit threat of mob violence. If the outcome is not what the mob demands. It's a very bad time for uh, justice in this country. And we are we are losing our faith in these systems and institutions. Uh, and the people that are pushing the hardest on them are the most reckless in their rhetoric and and the most damaging, I think, in their aims. Where I'm prepared to negotiate as to how the extent of the minor infrastructure project, as well as how we pay for it. But uh, I, if we get in a serious conversation about how to do that, I think everyone acknowledges we need significant increase in, in infrastructure. It's going to get down to what we call infrastructure. Some people don't think that uh, I'm not suggesting anybody here has that view, but there's a lot of folks saying that uh, the fact that we have uh, uh, millions of people not able to drink water because there's lead and the, it's coming through lead pipes. I think that's infrastructure. I think broadband is infrastructure. It's not just roads, bridges, highways, etc. That's what we're going to talk about. And uh, I'm confident everything's going to work out perfectly. I'm confident that the Democrats are going to just spend whatever money they want to spend and do exactly what they want to do and not get a damn single Republican vote and say they're being obstructionist. You know, no joke, obstructionist. That's what's going to end up happening. I mean, there, there's not really any, uh, there's not, they're not really going to be any good faith uh, effort to bring Republicans along with this. The Democrats have majorities and they're going to use them and they're going to push forward with everything they can and they're going to spend an inordinate amount of money. I mean, they're just going to spend a mind blowing, can't even wrap your brain around it level of money. And I'm just going to tell you if you start looking at what, you start looking at in the past past what inflation does to economies and what inflation does to, to people in them and, and how it it undermines and erodes trust in the system and also it quite clearly erodes your savings, right? Makes the dollars you've worked for less valuable in the future. I mean, this it's really pernicious. It's really bad. And Democrats just they're gonna go for it. They don't care. They don't believe I mean, it's the same way when I have conversations with Democrats about minimum wage and I explain them. I said, you realize that, yes, minimum wage does help some people. It also will result in some job losses and cutbacks on hours. So it's a complicated picture. And they say, 
No, it won't. Not this time. And I say, okay, well, you know, we've we can learn from the past and we've seen this. And every time you have a minimum wage increase, there are some people who will also there will be people who make more money, uh, workers who make more money. But there also will be people who lose jobs and lose hours and perhaps even businesses that that can't function, that that go under as a result. Although that's not I'm not saying that's widespread or, or commonplace depends. And they say, well, not this time. I say, well, why can't we learn from history? And this, I think, is a, is a central flaw in so much of the left's thinking. They don't believe that we should be learning from history when it comes to economics and when it comes to how these policies work. This time they'll get it the right way. I mean, this is central to how they defend uh, communism, Marxism, socialism. It's always, well, they didn't do it the right way. We'll do it better now. We'll apply the principles of this better this time around. And if that if that doesn't work, then they just go back to, oh, yeah, sure. We're really bipartisan. We're really willing to reach out to the other side. Here's Chuck Schumer. Play five. The first bill I put on the floor on the American Rescue Plan was bipartisan. It was the Restaurants Relief Act, which is helping our restaurants throughout New York. And as majority leader, I have the power to determine what goes on the floor. The first bill, as I said, was bipartisan. Senator Wicker of Mississippi, Senator Sinema of Arizona, one a Republican, one a Democrat. So we would like to work with them, and we will try to work with them, but we have to get things done. And if we can't work with them, we'll move forward on our own. But our choice would be to work with them. This is a total inversion of actual reality, because when Republicans were in the majority was when the bipartisan stuff happened in in the pandemic year in 2020, when there was bipartisan action taken, Republicans were the ones who pushed it forward. Democrats, you'll notice now they just hope people don't pay attention. They they just do what they want to do. There's no bipartisan uh, effort whatsoever. And they want to just get what they want to get, spend what they want to spend. And all you have to do is be knowledgeable about history. All you have to do is, is understand what actually happened. You know that they're lying. But as is so often the case with these Democrats, they act under the assumption that it, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter if they lie because people don't know. The general public isn't well informed enough about what really happened with these bills and what's going on in Congress to know that Chuck Schumer is full of crap. You know, technology definitely makes life easier in a lot of ways, but there's often a price to pay in terms of privacy. We experience it with computers, with smartphones, with devices in our homes. Computers may provide the best example with all the information you can access and you can create and choose to share all this different information about yourself. It's endless, but it's also your private workspace no matter where you are. ExpressVPN is one company that's made your online privacy and protection their priority. VPN stands for a virtual private network. It's a way for you to create an additional layer of privacy with everything you're doing online on the Internet. So if you're making a purchase, there's a new level of privacy and data protection that goes with using the Express VPN service. If you're sending an email, it's the same thing. It's similar to the notion of protecting your cell phone number from showing up when you make a call, right? Just imagine that that's what's happening for all your data, all the things going on with your devices, your computer, your, your smartphone, when you're online, ExpressVPN is what this service is called, and it gives you a level of privacy and protection that's not expensive at all, less than $6 a month, and can protect up to five devices, including your computer. I'll tell you where it really comes in handy. It's when you're using public Wi-Fi. That alone is worth it. If you're spending any time ever on public Wi-Fi, 
and you're not using uh, VPN, you're not using ExpressVPN, you're taking risks you shouldn't be taking. Go right now and get a great deal. We'll give you three months extra on a one-year package. Go to expressvpn.com slash buck. Just go to this website, sign up, just a handful of dollars a month, and you'll be protected. Your data will be encrypted, and you'll have privacy when you're using the Internet. expressvpn.com slash buck. That's expressvpn.com slash buck. I know the president has appointed uh, Vice President Kamala Harris to work on the border problem. And he clarified that it's more diplomatic than, I guess, hands-on. But does it concern you that um, we haven't really heard from her? No, but she's a very capable person, a thoughtful person, and somebody who I think is per- is very, very capable of coming up with solutions. We put $50 billion into FEMA, which is emergency relief, which will be used to provide much more humane places for the people who are at the border than the kind of cages we saw under the last administration. We'll also be able to speed up adjudic- adjudication. There are rules as to when you get asylum, when you get... Um, uh, a refugee status, but you had to wait years oftentimes because they had no p- personnel there. This will provide some of that. So that's not the whole solution. Another part of the solution, which I think they meant, is dealing with the problems in the three countries where so many of the people who come to cross the border are from, Honduras, um, El Salvador, Guatemala, which are having such problems, the gangs rule them, that people are fleeing for their lives. Notice that the focus here from... Uh Chucky Schumer. Notice the focus is on adding capacity and comfort to our southern border for those who cross into the country illegally. Understand that we have ports of entry. We have people that are supposed to be processing those who want to come into the country on foot at ports of entry. What we're dealing with are people that say, nope, I'm not going to wait. Not going to a port of entry. I'm just going to walk into America proper. I'm just going to walk onto U.S. territory which is illegal, and then I'm going to say I want asylum. Or I'm going to be a kid sent by adults through the cartels, trafficking them, and left at the border for American officials, uh, Border Patrol officers, to take custody of, take care of, change the diapers, get them food, get them medicine, whatever whatever needs to be done. That's what's actually happening. There's a the fundamental problem in all of this is that they're only talking, the Democrats are only talking, well, first they're, they're talking about how Kamala Harris is so great, she's the border czar. Kamala is not going to fix this. I, I, I think this is, I'm trying to see how this isn't going to end up being a, a loss for the, the Kamala brand, if you will, because she's now going to be associated with something. You just had the border coordinator, the Biden administration, say she's leaving. I forget her name now, but she's out. Now, Kamala's the border czar. She's supposed to handle this. And I guess they'll do a lot of Kamala speeches about how these are children and we care so much about the children. And, and, you know, it'll be pulling on the heartstring stuff. Fine. But she hasn't even gone down there yet. We haven't heard anything from her about the border. It's getting worse all the time. More and more people, more crowded facilities. So that's one part of this. Um, and, And the people are realizing it seems kind of strange. I mean, Senator Cornyn, even said, you got a border czar who doesn't seem to want to actually go to the border, play 17. We can get into an argument about who's to blame, but that doesn't change the more, more important matter about who has the power to stop it. 
First, President Biden needs to acknowledge the scope of this crisis and commit to addressing it along with us in the Congress. All we've gotten from the White House so far are statements telling migrants now is not the time to come, as though they will let everyone know when the time to come is appropriate. Two and a half weeks ago, the president tapped Vice President Harris to lead efforts to address this crisis, and I thought this was a sign that the administration was finally ready to take some informed action. But the vice president hasn't made a single trip to the border yet, and there's not even one on the horizon. And then she seemed to walk back that no, her assignment wasn't at the border, it was to engage in diplomacy with countries in Central America. Simple statements urging people not to come are meaningless when all of the policies represent a flashing green light. He's right. He's right. The way the Democrats talk about this issue at our border, it's as though the problem is we need to set up a chain of, you know, holiday inns along our southern border just for people that cross in the country legally to stay in while we do the the processing before we let them into the United States and just go do whatever they want. If only we had more facilities, this would be fine. They're they're missing a fundamental step here. They're missing a major problem. We need people to stop coming into the country illegally. That that's what they have no answer for. That's what they have. No, they have nothing to say about that. Apparently, in fact, what we know is that they they really want that to continue. They they don't believe that illegal entry is a major concern. They don't believe illegal entry is a major problem. They they just don't. And we could sit around and talk about it as much as we want, but they they like it. It benefits them politically. It's very interesting. There was a piece in the New York Times over the weekend that was just talking about how, sure enough, while the Biden administration's tapped Kamala Harris to run the border uh, response, and there's more media coverage of this now because they can't avoid talking about entirely what we can all see, which is these completely overcrowded, overwhelmed facilities, that this this problem, as I've been saying to you now for going on a couple of months, it's just going to get worse because now think about what they're doing. We have a, we have limited facilities for for handling people who cross the border illegally. They flooded those facilities. They're overwhelming those facilities. And instead of finding a way to quickly turn people back so they won't come, the Biden administration approach is let's expand our capacity to enable the continued exploitation of our immigration system by family units, by people claiming that they are going to get asylum when they have no interest in actually going through the asylum process, and by parents who are sending their kids. I mean, I don't, of course, don't blame the kids for this. They're young children. They're being sent by their parents. But the parents need to stop doing this. This is not okay. This is not safe. This is not right. This should not be done. You shouldn't be sending your kids through cartel smugglers to the southern border. And, you know, because the politics were a little different than even Obama. And I know, believe it, believe me, but Obama a decade ago was saying, do not send your children. They probably won't be able to stay and we will send them back. You can find audio of, of pre- former President Obama as a, as a Democrat and as a man of the left saying that straight up now. It's not exactly followed up with by his actions, and I understand that, but at least that was the narrative. The narrative now from the Democrats is, oh, yeah, no, send send whoever you want to send, and we'll make sure they're totally safe and taken care of. We'll feed them, clothe them, house them, medical care, whatever you need, 
And, you know, you'll, you'll probably be in those facilities for a few days. Remember, the stuff you're seeing, the, the, photo, the photos you're seeing, the media of people that are being held in, in the uh, border patrol uh, detain, detainment centers, essentially, is where you have people that have the metallic blankets and they're all very, very close together. Those conditions, I believe, only are last for two or three days maximum, sometimes less than that. Then there's the HHS facilities and the HHS facilities is where you get into, you know, large housing units, almost like dorm living with people being held. And and that's where they're getting school, including in-person schooling and, and getting fed and everything else. So so those are different things. And they've had to surge personnel from the federal government already just to get those fully staffed up. But but back to my point about where this is all heading, New York Times is writing about how. They're now expanding capacity. The Biden team is expanding their capacity at the southern border for up to 35,000 unaccompanied minors in custody at one time. 35,000 in custody. That's not the aggregate number over a period of months. That's at any one time they can handle 35,000 unaccompanied minors. The border agents in March alone encountered 19,000 children at the U.S.-Mexico border. And there could be, according to government projections the New York Times has seen here, they think there might be 35,000 migrant children that have to be cared for by June. I mean, friend, this, this, is, this is seismic. I mean, this is mass migration in the United States we're talking about over a period of months. Hundreds of thousands of people, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. When you start to look at what this is going to do, you know, you got to understand right away that this and it's not going to stop. It's not going to stop. And the way the Democrats are handling this, uh, you know, it's going to continue on. It's only going to get worse. And you know what they're going to eventually say? You know, they're going to tell us that. This the only way to handle this is through a mass amnesty. So they're essentially turning the pressure up for an amnesty by allowing more and more legals into the country, overwhelming the system in a Linsky eyed fashion. And they're going to turn around and say, oh, you know what? Yeah, you should just you should just make everyone. And then they act like that's not going to prevent or that's not going to encourage rather even more illegal immigration in the country. I mean, when we're discussing numbers like. Uh, you know, 100,000 illegal crossings a month, 150,000, 180,000 a month. That's what we're looking at here. All in, that's with family units and adults and children. There are only 6 million people who live in El Salvador total. About 10 million live in Honduras. I mean, we're taking in hundreds of thousands of people over a short period of time from just a, a couple of countries. I mean, you're starting to see, folks, that this is mass migration. And it's going to have, you know, tremendous effect on our on our immigration laws, on our politics, on on everything going on here. And and eventually you're going to have to we're going to have to have the debate with the Democrat Party openly about whether or not they're just going to start to become a party that says, yeah, we're open borders. Whoever wants to come should be able to come. And this will be an experiment. This will be unknown in, in, in modern human history. What other country does this? Why do we have this? But 
You know, if you oppose this, notice how they always point to other countries. Look at what they do in France or look at what they do in this other country. You know, they do this with masks and lockdowns and all this stuff. On this issue, we're the only country in the world that seems to be that, that, that seems to be convinced by its elites, by the, by its own media, by one of two major parties, political parties. And a lot of Republicans go along with this, too. We have been convinced that opposition to open borders is inherently racist that's where we are as a society now even though no other country in the world has open borders are they all racist you know you don't just get to show up if you fly to france and you say i want to be a citizen of the eu they're going to laugh at you and send you home it's not going to happen is that right doesn't matter what race you are it doesn't matter you know who you is that racist but you see, it all comes down to this. It's, it's, it's now years, decades of multicultural diversity obsession, indoctrination, where we can't even have rule of law at our southern border without people immediately turning it into a race issue when really it's a rule of law and national sovereignty question that every other country in the world is allowed to see that way but our own left, the, the, the authoritarian socialists within the Democrat Party who now run the Democrat Party, they have transformed this discussion and they're transforming America in the process. But it is very, very important for everybody to understand that the reduction in these numbers, in hospitalizations and in deaths and in infections, has not been achieved by the vaccination program. People don't, I think, appreciate that it's the lockdown that has been overwhelmingly important in delivering this improvement in, uh, in, the, in the, uh, the pandemic and in the figures that we're seeing. And so, uh, yes, of course, the vaccination program has helped, but the bulk of the work in reducing the disease has been done by the lockdown. Oh, no, this is uh, entirely untrue. But you see, uh, Boris Johnson here telling you all that... It's really not the vaccine. It's the lockdown. Um, no, no, no. Lockdowns failed. Lockdowns do not work the way we were told they would work. Unless you have a full-on stay-at-home order that is enforced and where people do not, they do not deal with other human beings. And that includes essential workers. That includes everybody. Unless everyone stays away from everyone else, it doesn't really work. All you do is funnel the virus exchange into other places in society. And then the moment you get rid of the lockdowns, of course, now you have everybody out intermingling as they would have before. It only made sense as a policy from the very beginning so that we didn't have so many people sick at one time that they couldn't get any treatment in hospitals. And yet it has now been expanded to this, this tool we keep we keep thinking or keep being told that if only we will obey and go through these lockdowns, then something great will happen. It doesn't work. But Boris Johnson is just one of many people out there right now who are not going to tell you the truth about the lockdowns. No, no, no. He's going to be pretending that if only we had just, you know, listened to the science more, we'd be in such a better place. Uh no, what ended up happening is we listened to people, politicians, who 
aren't honestly very smart in a lot of cases. Boris Johnson's actually pretty smart, but a lot of politicians in in this country who are idiots and who panicked and who liked the control and who bought into this this storyline that Fauci and the Fauciite consensus knew what they were doing. When if you look at pandemic preparedness stretching back for decades, really for a century now, Fauci and the, and the rest of the gang were making it up as they go along. They were actually throwing out the previous conventional wisdom and then prevent and then pretending that their new conventional wisdom was, in fact, all that was uh, all that anybody could uh, could come to as a conclusion. There, there was no alternative. There was the only option. It's a it's a terrible gaslighting that has gone on here. And as we get further along here and closer to normalcy and their fight for normalcy is underway because they want to drag this out. If we listen to the Fauci consensus, this is where things stand. We'll, We'll be doing this for the rest of the year, the rest of the year. Uh, The lockdowns and all I'm telling you, at least and the masks and everything else, we have to call BS where it is. And when Johnson is saying it's not vaccines, it's our interventions, our mitigation measures. They're never going to admit that the mitigation measure, the mitigation measures, as Fauci says, didn't do anything. So just be prepared for that. And this is not the, the vaccines bring down numbers considerably. The masks and the lockdowns have failed. That's where we are. That's what we've seen. That's what has actually happened in America and the UK and a lot of other countries. All right, let's bring in some law enforcement expertise here to discuss what happened in Brooklyn Center and also just what's going on with these riots and the overall BLM narrative across the country. Our friend John Cardillo back with us now, formerly of the NYPD. He's a conservative commentator, TV and radio host. Follow him on Twitter at John Cardillo if you're not already. John, great to have you. Always good to be with you, Buck. Thanks. So let's just talk about this, man. We've seen the body camera footage. Uh, it it looks bad. What do you see? No, look, it looks really bad. You've got a female officer with a lot of years on the job who clearly screwed up in the worst imaginable way. She thought she was deploying her taser. She was actually deploying her firearm, fired a shot, and killed a guy who wasn't doing anything to warrant the escalation of deadly force. So that's clear. I don't think anybody who's an honest broker is going to debate that universally accepted in the law enforcement groups I'm on, on social media, some of the private ones. There isn't a cop to a person I know, man or woman, that's defending her actions. The problem, though, is media and institutional, right, Buck? Because we've gotten away from police departments, and especially smaller ones like Brooklyn Center that aren't well-funded, they've gotten away from training tactics. There's almost this aversion, this this, uh, push to get away from the gun get away from the non-lethal devices and train on diversity, on trans outreach. Well, you know what? All that stuff, that's not the stuff that makes the press. And when you don't have cops put rounds down range, when you don't have them train relentlessly muscle memory training on where that taser is as opposed to that firearm, this is what happens. So it's the defunding of the police. I believe it's the media is guilty as well because this cops are terrified to be too rough physically with a suspect. You know, if those cops had taken Dante right out of the car, thrown him on the ground physically and cuffed him, he'd be alive today. But they were gingerly touching him. He was able to get away. In a high-stress situation, she wasn't trained properly. She didn't really have the mindset 
to be a cop in that situation. She fired a gun instead of a taser. So, so there are a lot, of, a lot of blame to be placed here, both on the media, on left-wing politics, and on what the institution of law enforcement has become. And, and on, on the, the, the taser specifically, the issue of the use of force there, John, uh, I know it can vary precinct to precinct, state to state, but yeah. well, just, just give folks a, a basic understanding of wh- what is the protocol for when the taser can be deployed, right? What, what has to happen to, because it seems like sometimes in some of these videos, it's just repeated noncompliance or, you know, wh- wh- how does that force yeah. escalation actually work? How is it taught in the academy? With discretion. So, you know, the taser, so, so you're taught non-discretionary and discretionary use of force, right? An example of non-discretionary use of force is you and I are two cops, but we're partners. Somebody starts shooting at us. We're going to return fire. We don't really have a lot of discretion there, right? We draw guns and shoot back or we're going to get killed. Discretionary is what you saw there. But I believe she was fine in using the taser. I, I believe it did escalate to non-discretionary once he entered the vehicle and attempted to get away because the vehicle's a weapon. More people are killed with cars than guns every year. We just had a Capitol police officer killed when somebody rammed into him with a car. And so the her escalation of force was proper. It was legal. It was within every department's policy that I know, and I still work with police departments around the country. Um, I speak to them daily. And so I have no problem with that. It was her lack of training under that high stress to draw the right non-lethal device as opposed to a lethal handgun, that was the issue. But but in terms of escalation of force, police are typically trained to always use one level of force above the bad guy. So if they're swinging punches at you, use your nightstick, pepper spray, or taser. If they're jumping in a vehicle without a weapon, tase them. If they turn that vehicle to aim it at you, by all means, draw your firearm. And draw your firearm and fire it if they draw one and don't fire theirs. You don't have to wait for them to take the first shot. So escalation of force, the police doctrine for decades, century plus, has been one level of force above the offender. And the reason for that, outside of deadly force, is to get them under control so they don't get injured, you don't get injured, and and the public doesn't get injured. We're speaking to John Cardillo, formerly of the NYPD and conservative commentator, political analyst. And John, uh, just one thing, uh, the... I know there are different designs of these non-lethals. I, I've had yeah. minimal experience with a few non-lethals, not very much because it was never in, in my uh, in my you know area of responsibility. But don't they usually tr- aren't they usually made to feel different in the hand than the muscle memory of say drawing a you know a Glock nineteen or drawing a, a, a Sig or something and, and actually drawing down and firing? Aren't aren't there ways that they're supposed to be? Designed differently, or is that not always the case? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the so she, I believe, I, and when I say design differently, I know they're different things. I mean, the feel on the hand, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. The grip, the grip is going to be different. But look, that's only going to matter. I shoot a lot because I enjoy it. It's a hobby. I still uh, consult with a couple of training products, and so I have occasion. I shoot often, <clears throat> you know, often once a week at the very least. Most cops don't. Uh, they really don't. Most departments, their training's abysmal. The cops shoot a couple of hundred rounds a year in, in some instances. It, it'd be rare to find a department, especially a smaller one, where cops are mandated to shoot a thousand rounds a year, a hundred rounds a month. That's almost unheard of. So if they're not training on their own, you're really not going to notice the difference. Now, if you're training quite a bit, yeah, that that uh, that taser is going to be a hell of a lot lighter then my Glock, I tend to carry a Glock with a loaded magazine. I'm going to feel the difference in the balance. I'm going to know instinctively what the grip feels like and certainly know 
but that non-lethal is much lighter. It's a different grip angle, length, etc. But again, if if you're training, if you're putting yourself through those repetitive motions over and over, if you just go into the range once a year and qualifying or twice a year as the department mandates, you very well might not notice that difference under stress. John, I also want to know, we've got all these uh, politicians now in Minnesota, you know, the governor and the mayor of Brooklyn, Brooklyn Center, and they're talking about, you know, police reform and we need to do more and we need to. Uh, but it, it feels like I mean, we're, I'm sitting here talking about tactics and the reality of what happened in this situation, which which clearly is a tragedy and should not have happened. And it's a it looks very clearly to be police error, which does happen. Cops are not perfect. And this is a terrible, tragic accident. But th- to, to your earlier point, they're not going to say, well, we just need to spend more time on the range and more time understanding, uh, you know, understanding how to deploy nonlethal uh, so that you don't get these things confused. I mean, it's going to be it's it's always some version of we need more federal oversight and more investigation of racism. And th- it seems like it, it they don't they say they want to fix the problem, but then it always gets put into this other bucket where it has nothing to do with the actual problem. Yeah, no, exactly. And I'm glad you brought that up. So just for the listeners to put it into perspective, how rare this is. There are about 700,000 sworn law enforcement officers and and federal agents in the nation. That encompasses everything from local police to the FBI. And there are about 330 million people in the nation. So when you do an estimate, when law enforcement does, and it's hard to, there are about 100 million police-public interactions yearly, right? So the reason I say it's difficult to is an interaction is a radio call or a 911 call. Something comes over the computer. That's easy to track. But it's also a cop being flagged down on the street. Hey, I saw two guys. They might be robbing a, a, a house, burglarizing a house, or trying to steal a car. You roll over there, they're not. They're just two guys who were working in the neighborhood, looking in the window of the car to, to see if somebody was home, or of the house to see if somebody was home. That's an interaction. So there are about 100 million of those a year. And really, we only hear about four or five incidents at best that go sideways. You know, the, the Black Lives Matter crew and the Antifa crew would like to have you believe that every time a cop draws their gun and fires their gun, it's unjustifiable. It's not. It's not. It only happens about four or five times a year. So statistically, it's as close to zero as it can possibly be. And if you truly analyzed it honestly and critically, you'd find out that it's the result of poor training and tactics. The NYPD learned this when their cops were firing 16 rounds with, you know, emptying their their firearms with with a hit rate of like 2%. Well, they realized, hey, we better get back to training these cops a little better. And now the NYPD has increased how many rounds a year cops fire, but they've got the money to do it. Small departments like Brooklyn Center don't. Yeah, I'll never forget, John, when I was a I I got to go to the NYPD range here in the city when I was I just come out of the agency and we'd had all the farm training and all the things that we do there. And uh, I'll just tell you, I was out shooting a lot of the cops. <laughs> oh yeah, and, and not by a little bit either. I mean, it just they don't oh, spend. Yeah. You know that the farm we had essentially, which is the CIA training facility, kind of a well well known place yeah. in you know media and movies and stuff. It really it does exist. And you know you're firing thousands of rounds a week, literally thousands yeah. of rounds a week, and you get weeks on end of training just on firearms. Uh, and then you go overseas and you're shooting every day because you're deployed with military or you're 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 a military uh, civilian advisor. Um, and you know these cops. I mean, it's true. They just there a lot of them. You're you're talking about you, for example. You shooting is a part of your life. But if you only go to the range when you're forced to go to the range, it's not a lot of time. Oh God, no, no. I, it, it's a couple of hundred rounds. It's nothing. You know, I've got a good friend of mine. He's, he's a partner on a couple of things I do. He was a former SEAL Team 6 operator, guys you worked with in the agency. 
when they train, to put it in perspective, they're training on each firearm they they have. They're issued in six. It's a dream job. They get to have whatever they want with their own armor. That's a whole other story. But they're shooting about a thousand rounds per day per firearm. Put that in perspective that a cop that's shooting a couple of hundred rounds a year, 500 rounds a year, a thousand rounds a day per gun. So you can see the difference in the level of proficiency just based on training alone. Then we get into physical conditioning and standards and all that stuff. So it really is at the end of the day, all about training. John, I just want to know, do you think that there's any, is there really any hope that they're going to be able to calm things down in the days in the days ahead? And especially given the backdrop, I'm talking about in Minnesota now and the backdrop of the Derek Chauvin trial with all this, we're supposed to get a verdict. I believe at least the jury will be out to, to consider a verdict next week. So this, the timing of this is all, it feels like a, a conflagration about to happen. I mean, if you were if you were advising the governor of Minnesota, the mayor of Minneapolis to prepare for this, given the two we got two factors now, this shooting of 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 uh, Dante Wright and now the Chauvin trial verdict coming soon. What kind of preparations? I mean, we both know they're probably not going to take what they need to take as preparations. But if they were, what would you advise them to do? Oh, they need to fly. Well, they need the National Guard, number one, and then they need to fly in cops from other agencies. You know, back in the 90s when crime was soaring. Uh, NYPD had agreements with cities like Baltimore, D.C., Philadelphia, where NYPD cops could go down there and work their vacations to supplement and, and vice versa. They need to bring cops in from other jurisdictions because police officers are typically their commission is statewide. And so Minneapolis, uh, Minneapolis area now should really be looking at bringing in cops from around the state and from surrounding states. Very easy. The governor just signs a piece of paper. Those cops are now deputized in as law enforcement in that particular state. But they're going to need a lot of bodies on the ground to contain this. It's going to get bad. And it's going to get bad around the country. I mean, Antifa's still burning things down in Portland. And everybody's ignoring it. They burned an ICE facility with Homeland Security personnel inside last week. So I think things are going to be bad around the country. I don't know if departments are going to have bodies to lend to other cities. But, um, you know, they're going to need manpower. John Cardillo, everybody, formerly of the NYPD. Follow him on uh, Twitter to get his latest commentary on all these things that are going on. John, my friend, always great to have you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Buck. Good to see you. This would be an enormous gift to the Chinese Communist Party. You, you and I looked at this. We looked at this same set of issues about rare earth minerals. We also saw how dirty they were to extract. We saw what an environmental predation takes place inside of China. So if we spike that using U.S. taxpayer subsidies, it would be an enormous gift to the Chinese Communist Party and would work against the other priority that seems to be the Biden team's uh, priority, which is a, a greener, less carbon polluted planet. Uh, this would be a bad idea. It wouldn't work. You know, all these electrical vehicles running around inside of China today are mostly driven by coal-fired power plants. Uh, The the solution can't be to use American taxpayer resources to prop up the Chinese Communist Party under the guise of a Green New Deal. You know, we don't talk as much about foreign policy these days as we did in the early days of the uh, Trump administration. That's because the media, as you know, was busy advancing this fanciful, absurd narrative of Russia collusion, right? So we were a Russia. We're also scared of Russia all the time. We're supposed to be terrified of what the Russians are going to do. And oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? There's Russia. And that was what we were led to believe. That's what we were told. Um, that was absurd. But unfortunately, it was a dominant theme, a dominant narrative in the news media. And so there was a national obsession, really, with Russia for a while and ignoring, largely ignoring uh, the the much more considerable challenge that is posed by China and the Chinese 
Communist Party. Uh, that's a major issue for us. That's a, a major concern. The biggest one that we have on the foreign policy front. And there you had former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo just pointing out that when when we're talking about these Biden administration decisions, um, these Biden administration decisions like, for example, getting back into the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, this plays right into the hands of the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, which is going to just decide that they'll, in public, sign on for these agreements to try to burnish their international image and credentials, right? But then they'll do whatever they want to do, and no one's going to hold them to account. And whatever ways they can get an, an economic advantage over us, uh, they will they will go for it. And the Biden team is going to, they'll be so busy walking around, you know, virtue signaling over, oh, we're back into climate and we're taking climate seriously. It's a climate religion, as we know. The Democrats are, the, the religion of the Democrat Party is really climate change. Well, mask wearing and climate change. Those are the religions of the Democrat Party right now. And uh, that's that's going to be it is uh, creating a big opening for the uh, the CCP There's a really interesting piece. in The Wall Street Journal, China's message to America, we're an equal now. This was just from yesterday. Quote, let me, let me read some of this to you. It's written by Ling Ling Wei and Bob Davis. Quote, it quickly became obvious in Anchorage, Alaska last month that Chinese President Xi Jinping's diplomatic envoys hadn't come carrying olive branches. Instead, they brought a new world view. As Biden administration officials expected in their first meeting with Chinese counterparts, Yang Jiqi, Mr. Xi's top foreign policy aide, and Foreign Minister Wang Yi asked them to roll back Trump-era policies targeting China. Beijing wanted to restore the kind of recurring dialogue Washington sees as a waste of time. Mr. Yang also delivered a surprise, a 16-minute lecture about America's racial problems and democratic failings. The objective, say Chinese officials, was to make clear that Beijing sees itself as an equal of the U.S. He also warned Washington against challenging China over a mission Beijing views as sacred, the eventual reunification with Taiwan. That is a big shift for Chinese leaders, who for decades took care not to challenge the U.S. as the world's leader and followed the dictum Deng Xiaoping set decades ago Keep a low profile and bide your time. Some senior Chinese officials privately often sarcastically called the U.S. Uh, Lauda or Big Boss. Now Mr. Xi is reshaping the relationship. As far as he is concerned, China's time has arrived. Quote, China can already look at the world on an equal level, he told the annual legislative sessions in Beijing in early March. A remark widely interpreted in Chinese media as a declaration that China no longer looks up to the U.S. The U.S. routinely describes China as a strategic rival, but Beijing has rarely, if ever, used such terms, emphasizing terms like win-win and cooperation. One of the more obvious changes in China's attitude is that China now recognizes the existence of competition, which was never expressed in the past. So it says Wang Hui Wao, an advisor to China's state council, so basically, folks, this is just all a way of saying China knows that now's their time and they can run up the scoreboard against this Biden administration. And I think what you're going to see, and this is my prediction, is over the next four years, people are going to start talking about how China is going to is going to get ahead of us. It's just a question of when. And then the Democrat aligned Biden media is going to say, 
well, it was inevitable. And, you know, it's not Biden's fault. The excuse making will come from all over the place. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. It's time for Roll Call. Want to be a part of Roll Call? Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton or Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. If you want to email us, you can also send us um, uh, comments on Instagram, direct message us on Instagram. If you're not following me on the gram, please do. We're posting great content there now every day. And also on Facebook, we're, we're doing more and more content out of the Freedom Hut. So we got memes. We got links to the podcast. We got all kinds of stuff going up now. So we're very, very active there. And it's a great way for you to uh, chat with other Team Buck folks, too, in the comments section. So we get that going. Oh, I didn't I didn't manage to uh, get to this before earlier in the show, but I wanted to. Hank Azaria, who is a voice actor, he's an actor in general, but, you know, he's been with The Simpsons for a long time. He's not going around apologizing to all Indian uh, Americans for voicing the Simpsons character Apu and. You know, producer Mark, I'm sure you've seen The Simpsons many times. I've seen The Simpsons many times. You know, it's just this whole this madness for me. It's like Apu is actually a a successful, you know, a successful family man. And he's actually quite clever on the show. And he's really a protagonist. Like everyone likes Apu. Apu's the good guy. Yeah. And he's on a comedy show. He's a funny character. He's a funny character. You know, he's 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 funny. And and he's, you know, he's well thought of and the audience, you know, I, I think I think a poo is like the American success story in a lot of ways for for, you know, he's the American immigrant success story. And yet uh, you're apologizing for it. I mean, it's 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 remarkable. It really is. It really is. But this is the this is the world we're in now. I mean, I wonder how long it is before they just start pulling. You think this is crazy? They're going to start pulling episodes of The Simpsons off uh, start pulling episodes of The Simpsons, uh, you know, off of these streaming services or where I don't even know. Where do you watch The Simpsons? Is it on Hulu or Disney Plus? Oh, Disney Plus. Yeah. yeah. Just give it time. They might start editing these things out, start taking certain characters and getting rid of them. You know, it's uh, it's a sad thing, man. I, I thought The Simpsons would had at least reached that level of of cultural you know, just cultural icon status where we would all agree that that's it's been on the air for I don't even know over twenty years, going on almost thirty years I now. Think it's right? the longest running show ever. At this rate. Yeah, probably finally and, beat Mash. Yeah, and uh, sure enough, you know, a, a poo. He's now, he's now sad about a poo. The whole thing. It it just I think the, I think it's really yeah, it's just a sign of the times, friends. You know, nothing's. Oh, you know, I did see. I watched with the Snow Princess last night. This guy. Um, Nate Bar Bar Gates or Bar Gats, uh, producer Mark. Have you seen this guy on Netflix? No, I have not. He's actually funny. He's from uh, Tennessee, and he's got a he's got a, uh, a a special up on Netflix, and he is uh, he's funny, and he's not not a lot of curses, not a lot of. Uh, not no woke humor really or anything. He just he just gets up on stage and just makes jokes. And he's funny and he's clever. He's got a good delivery. We watched the whole special. I thought it was good. See, I don't hate I don't hate everything in pop culture, producer Mark. 
you know how uh, complications to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine are one in a million? Yeah. So are things you like. That might be fair. But this guy's, a, this guy's in that one in a million category. I thought he was pretty funny. I thought it was good. I've, I've had to shut off so many uh, stand-up comedy things in recent years. I'm just like, oh, gosh, more. It's all so. And look, I'm not a Puritan at all. As anyone who knows me in real life and hears me speak knows, I'm not a Puritan. I, I salty language is something I'm quite OK with and all that. But, you know, it's so that the humor is also scatological and the humor is so uh, it's also sort of angry. And uh, well, a lot of it's political, as you know, and it's just all, you know, oh, Republicans are evil and, you know, you know the racist hillbillies, they're stupid. And it's all such such garbage. This guy, this guy, Nate Bar, Bar, I don't even know how you say his name. I think it's Bar Gates or Bar Gats, uh, but he was good. So I'd recommend, I think this audience, I will tell you this, right? If you're listening to the show, I think you'd enjoy Nate's uh, comedy special. So it was pretty solid on Netflix. I, I give the guy credit. It's some really, some, some funny, funny stuff. And it's about 45 minutes long. It's pretty easy. But more importantly than even all of that, producer Mark, we got to tell everybody we have a Malta podcast released tonight. That's right. Shields High, The Siege of Malta, Part 1. And I know producer Mark has been saying, where's the Malta podcast? So now he knew that it was recorded because I sent it to him a while ago. We're releasing the first one. And then within about a week, we'll release part two. I just want everyone to understand that the Shields High, it's just history, as you know. And the Siege of Malta, Part 1 is really the prelude to the siege. Part two is going to be the actual siege. But in the in the prelude, I set up the world leading to the Siege of Malta, which is one of the I think one of the most incredible battles in all history uh, for what it is. And I believe Voltaire said nothing is as well known as the Siege of Malta. Like it, it was a big deal um, for the, the uh, 16th century. And anyway, I Siege of Malta podcast is out. Please share this. Take this as an opportunity to share it with people who maybe are, are particularly interested in history, not as interested in, in politics per se. We can consider this a, a way of getting people to, to sign up and be a part of Team Buck. Uh, sign up, just listen, right? Don't really sign anything. But to be a part of Team Buck, uh, who may not be that into the, the political side of stuff right away. Anyone you know who likes history, I mean, I think, and you'll learn about the character Romaga, or Romagas, if you want to Americanize it, who was the most feared pirate of the Knights of St. John uh, or the Knights of Malta later uh, uh, on the island of Malta. And incredible story this guy has. He's a essentially a swash, a swashbuckling, you know, pirate chasing down Ottoman na- Ottoman ships and really led to the sea. What he did led to the siege of Malta itself. He was at the siege of Malta. He's later at the Battle of Lepanto. And it's the whole it's just incredible. The whole thing. I'm telling you, check it out. The Siege of Malta, part one and part two will be just because this is what I had to do. Part two will be the actual siege. So you might that one will be a little more action packed in that regard. But I think you should know the uh, the lead up story. You'll learn about Madarin de l'Escou de Romaga, who doesn't. I know it sounds like a French waiter or something to some of you, but it, the guy is a badass, a total badass not only a a great naval commander but also a a hand-to-hand combatant i mean the guy is legit uh so you'll learn about romaga the pirate and the pirate in his the pirate for christ was what he was he thought he was a pirate for for jesus and for 
uh, for Christianity against the hated infidel Turk. Fascinating stuff. So especially for a lot of you, uh, you know, the homeschool parents out there, if you're looking for a straight up history show, no political commentary. That's what we do in Shields High. We're releasing the first one. We're going to have the second one out within about uh, a week or so. And I, I hope you really enjoy it. And please share it. The more listens we get on the history shows, the more history shows we will do. And you all have a big uh, part to play in that by one listening yourself, but also post. I mean, post the Siege of Malta uh, to your your Facebook page and let your friends see it and click on it. And, you know, please share it. I mean, or, or even better, uh, uh, if you if you can email it or or any way you can share it, word of mouth, whatever you can do. Appreciate it. All right. Since we had that and we can talk more about Siege of Malta tomorrow if you want. Uh, we got roll call now, though. And let's hear from all. Let's hear from all the folks. Uh, Sharon. Hey, Buck. I went to this area of Scottsdale named the Scottsdale Quarter. It's an area that looks like an, a large urban city in the middle of a wide open free Scottsdale, Arizona. What is the appeal to live in an urban loft skyscraper for 400 or for $550,000 when you can live in a house with four acres down the street for the same money? You are from New York. Maybe you can explain this. As I was visiting, exiting this district, I saw people sitting in their cars on a charger while I shopped. I hopped in my gas vehicle and drove away. How is this progress? I keep hearing all these envirocrats talking about how electric cars are going to save the environment. Is there one of these guys that can answer the question about where these cars get their energy and how that affects the environment? Keep up the good work. Stay free. By the way, is, is it? No, it's Aaron. I'm sorry. I said Sharon. Aaron. Uh, my bad. Pardon me, Aaron. Um. So a couple of things, if you're asking me, what's the appeal of living? And in New York, I live in the most extreme in Manhattan, the most extreme version of this you'll get anywhere in the country, which is why would you want to live in expensive, extreme density when you have the prospect of much more space and, and room for even less money in other places? Right. So this is the urban versus rural real estate conversation at some level. And I'll tell you, in New York, it's here's what you would get in good times. Forget about pandemic times in good times in a city like New York and San Francisco. If you are a if you were an unmarried 30 year old guy, uh, you have in New York City, arguably the greatest concentration and therefore access to easy access to uh, jobs and career opportunities, food and entertainment uh, options, you know, whether it's sporting events or bars or nightclubs or whatever, um, you have just the greatest uh, the greatest access to and options, you know, kind of optionality, if you will, of what you want to do with your time. And you're paying for proximity to all these things. So if you and, and also you have a, a lot of people. So if you you know, or out there dating or something like that, you know, you have access to a, a broader range of, of folks in your dating pool. I'm just saying these are the upsides. The downsides are very obvious. Congestion, a lot of people, a lot of traffic, um, human beings all over the place, close quarters, real estate, uh, less, you know, you have less room for your stuff. You have less uh, ability to kind of live your life without having to hear what the neighbors are arguing about. So we all know what the downsides are. Um, I think, though, Aaron, and this is maybe what what I'm getting to, this value proposition has changed forever because of remote working and telecommuting. And uh, I would even say in virtual medicine now has changed this. I mean, there's a lot that you can get 
when you can shop and communicate and work online and virtually in the ways we can now, the benefits of being in a dense city are even less than they were. That's and that's where I think we are. And so you're going to see a huge and this is going to continue on irrespective of the pandemic, a huge move toward people going into uh, you know, smaller cities, places, you know, you're gonna have young families are going to say, why am I going to live in New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles or Chicago when I can get so much more value by living in you know, Jacksonville, Florida or Albuquerque, New Mexico or uh, uh I mean, I always want to say Austin, although Austin's gotten very expensive and very trendy in Austin, Texas, uh, where I will be. Also, a quick note for Team Buck. I'm going to be in Austin, not this weekend, but next weekend. It is happening next Saturday, team. Somebody who listens from KLBJ Austin, tell me a great place to go to to get some drinks and maybe some barbecue. And that's like a a classic Austin venue. And uh, if I if I like the. The way it sounds, we'll we'll have a just I'll just be there with some friends and people from our KLBJ Austin family. If you want to show up, have a drink, say hi, you know, so that's that's what we'll do. Um, I will be in Austin. I know I've been talking about it forever. It is happening. So I'm going down to the border next week for a couple of days and then I'll be in Austin for the weekend after it. So uh, to our KLBJ Austin fam, definitely send me some ideas for a bar. Really, I, I want a barbecue place. I want a barbecue joint where everyone can kind of meet up and hang out a little bit, and I'll get to finally meet and, and shake hands and see some of you. So there you have it. Continuing on with Roll Call, Alex, Buck, great to have you back and recovered. As usual, Mike did an awesome job filling in. He seems like a great dude and might be my favorite of your guest hosts. Uh, Alex, I'll tell you, Mike Slater is a really good guy. I uh, like him a lot. I've, no, I've known Mike for, I don't know, seven, probably seven or eight years now. And I know he does a really, a really great job on radio, and uh, we're very pleased to have him. Uh, next week, we're, we're going to have Rob Smith in, who's another really good guy, and uh, looking forward to having him guest host for me for a couple of days. But yeah, Mike Slater is one. He, I will say this. He's one of the nicest guys I know in conservative media. So and, and it's funny because there are some people in conservative media who, as much as I would agree with a lot of their politics, I know them personally, and they, some of the ones that you know are, are jerks, folks. I'll let you know that. Some of them are actually not good guys, uh, but many of them are. And uh, Mike Slater is one of the, was one of the good guys for sure. Alex writes, I know you've said that you hate it when the right eats its own. I definitely agree. Like Rush used to say, we shouldn't be infighting over earmarks and ethanol. We really don't have the luxury of splitting hairs while basic truths and freedoms are being reimagined. On the other hand, it has been incredibly refreshing to see a new trend developing in that rhino types are getting exposed and taking heat from what they allege to be their own side. I think the duplicity and vanity from the GOP end of the swamp has been more damaging to conservative than anything the far left could ever do. Seeing that there might actually be blowback for swampy behavior and that there are viable alternatives, DeSantis obviously comes to mind first, gives me a lot of hope for the future. Conservative governance shouldn't be that complicated. First, give a rip about your country. Second, don't operate within the false premises of the left. Third, just don't be a chicken bleep. Otherwise, get primary and it's the next politician up. All the best to you and Mark Shields High. Alex, I think well said. I, I don't really have um, I don't really have much to add to your your eloquent and, and thoughtful message other than thank you for writing it in. And I'm glad we got to share it on the air. Uh, let's see here. 
Andres. Freedom Hut, howdy. On yesterday's show, you again noted the absence of debate. You're spot on. There are two people I've been listening to religiously and have held in high regard due to their political analysis. These fellows both understood the value and importance of debate. I thank you and the late Jay Severin for sharing your sharp mind, humor, and patriotism. Producer Mark, thanks for your work and being part of the Freedom Hut. I'm, uh, in memory of Jay, Excelsior and Shields High team. Andres, thank you so much. You know, I can tell you, uh, Jay Severin and I got to know each other a bit when we worked together at the Blaze. And we, we took a car ride together in, in Salt Lake City. And he said to me, he named a whole bunch of radio hosts. And he's like, none of them really have it, including some very well-known ones, by the way. He goes, none of them really have it, Buck. You have it. You stay with this. You actually have the gift to do this. And at that early stage of my career, this was seven or eight years ago now. Or, I don't know, it's been a while, maybe six or seven years ago. That was really meaningful. I always appreciated Jay Severin, who I thought of as a, as a real radio guy, uh, saying that to me. All right, team, that's going to be it for today. Back tomorrow with more Shields High.